Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, the topic of synchronicity is, in my mind, one of the most fascinating topics out there. The term was coined by the great Swiss psychologist Carl Jung in the early 1900s, and he actually has a book, a short book, uh, entitled Synchronicity. Now, the term means, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means a simultaneous occurrence of events that appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Sort of a mouthful, but we're going to be getting into this a little bit. Another, another way to describe synchronicity are meaningful coincidences. The song is in our head. It plays on the radio. We think about a friend. She calls as if we are all part of a story, the plot of which remains a mystery. So today I'm very happy to have on the show Dr. Alan Hunter, who's written a book entitled The Path of Synchronicity, Align Yourself with Your Life's Flow. Now he's a full professor of literature at Curry College. He's a counselor and he has a doctorate degree in literature from Oxford University's traveled all over the place including Europe, India, Africa and he currently lives in Boston. He's authored 12 books in addition to The Path of Synchronicity and his current book is entitled Gratitude and Beyond Five Insights for a Fulfilled Life. Today though we're going to be getting into this topic of synchronicity and finding out what it means to get on the path. Welcome to the show Alan. It's great having you. Oh, it's great to be invited. Thank you for um, bringing me along. <laughs> well, as I said in the beginning in our little talk, the topic of synchronicity is really intriguing to me because I real I think it it's it tells us something about the world we live in. And the other thing about it is that there's very few people who haven't experienced these events. But first, let's let's define our terms a little bit for those who aren't sort of in tune with the concept what do you mean by synchronicity yes it's a very difficult term to define because so many people of course uh, out there would think in terms of dumb luck or mere coincidence or one in a million chances and, and words like that uh, so I think in terms of defining it what we have to say is that synchronicity is when an event occurs at just the right time, in just the right place, in a way that perhaps defies all reasonable explanation. That doesn't mean that we can't try and explain it away if we're, if we're really set on explaining it away because uh, lots of people don't want to accept that there may be such things as synchronicities. But I think that definition is a pretty good one, that uh, a confluence of events which one could not have predicted that leads one exactly where one needs to go. Yeah, I like, yeah, yeah, I like to, to say that there's, there's these events, these coincidences that are so compelling that they tell you something is going on. And I myself, I keep a, a, a little record of my synchronistical events mm. and it's sort of fun going back to them and I have I have one here which I will share just to sort of set the tone on what what we're really talking about and none of these I think are earth-shattering but they're but but they're little coincidences that seem to me to be a little strange I was I was uh, preparing to interview Manjir Samantha Lawton Mm -hmm. who is the author of the book uh, Punk Science, and I think she's also uh, from the UK. 
And so I was watching an interview of her on YouTube to prepare for my own interview, and she mentioned a 2003 Scientific American article on holograms, which was a little strange. So mm. I was reaching for my own uh, pile of research magazines, an issue of Skeptic Magazine, to get this quote out of it, and stuck to the Skeptic Magazine was the... 2003 scientific american article she had just mentioned <laughs> you know it's just it's just it's just little things like this to say what is going on here so now what yes. what led you to become interested in synchronicity i discovered uh, that synchronicity was something that was knocking on my door every day and uh, that i had been perhaps too eager to ignore it and so synchronicity for me happened when I began to look back over the events of my life and say, isn't that strange the way that happened? And how could that have just occurred like that? Yeah. And, and gradually I began to see that there was perhaps here a pattern. And uh, one might say the universe or the power of the universe or something was nudging me in a particular direction. Now, I, I start the book with... Um, with uh, uh, an example of that, which was how I got the job that I am currently in at Curry College in, in Milton as a professor of literature. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amusing story. I used to tell it as an amusing story at dinner parties. And people <laughs> would laugh and say, you know, oh, what a string of coincidences. Ho, 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 ho. And then after I told it a couple of times, I began to look at it and say, good gracious, you know, how odd is that? Yeah. And I'll tell you the story if you like. No, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Because that's because th this is what makes this topic sort of fun because we have these these little minuet stories <laughs> and then and then we're going to be connecting it to some larger issues. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll I'll certainly tell you the story. Uh, so it goes a little like this. I had just arrived in in Boston from England um and I had no job. Um so I needed I needed a job. And I looked in the newspaper, and oh, there was a little tiny ad that said, wanted professor of English at Curry College. So I went, was going to go for the interview. Oh, terrific. I didn't have a car, of course, because I'd only been in the United States for a few months. I thought, never mind, I'll just take local transportation and snag a taxi. So I took uh, the, the red line to Metapan Square, and I got out of the... the the subway station, look for a taxi. And in those days, this was um, a good few years ago, 27, 28 years ago, Matapan was a little bit of a rough spot. It looked fine to me, but uh, I was told later that that's a very rough spot. Couldn't find a taxi. Tried to phone for a taxi. No taxis would come to find me. I thought, oh no, you know, I, I'd better start walking. So I start walking in what I think is the right direction to get to the college not knowing quite how far away it is. And as I'm walking, I think in British terms, well, I'll just hitch a ride. So I stuck my thumb out. So there I am in my best suit with my little briefcase, and I'm sticking my thumb out into uh, traffic uh, at a rotary. And just at that moment, a car screeches to a halt beside me. And in it is a, a very beautiful younger woman and a lot of groceries and a baby all on the front seat, one of those huge cars that had a front seat about the size of, uh, of an airport lounge. <laughs> yeah, or your living room couch, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's right. And she said, get in. I, so I said, well, I'm trying to get to Curry College. She said, oh, oh, you're going in completely the wrong direction. She said, get in. And so I took the baby in my hands, and the groceries were uh, you know, all around me, and she said, um, where do you have to? When do you have to be at Curry College? And I said, Well, I have to be there in you know 15 minutes. And so she looked at me and said, We'd better hurry then. And uh, she she screeched off in this wonderful enormous car, ran a couple of red lights actually, and uh, delivered me right to the front door of the college. And I thanked her profusely, handed the baby back, and I thought, Well, this is this is. This is bizarre, but it's rather fun. So I go to the front door of the college where the security 
man is. And I said, uh, I'm trying to get to this building and these people. The security man is not impressed. He doesn't like the look of me, even though I've got my best suit on and I'm carrying my British umbrella. Uh, so just as I'm talking with him, another car pulls up, uh, which has the president of the Alumni Association in it. And he said, oh, no trouble. I'll take you there. Wow. And it wasn't until later that I realized that not only was it a very long way from the front gate to the building where I was supposed to have the interview, but it was summer and they'd taken all the signs down to repaint them. <laughs> so, you know, if he hadn't been there at that just that minute, I couldn't have got there on time and I couldn't have found the right building. Uh, so so that's, that's an amazing sequence of events, which I think tells you that you were meant for that job, if nothing else. Yeah. But I also, I also want to observe here that... In our current mindset, where you know materialism uh, rules the day, materialism being the belief that we are separate creatures, uh, sort of robots made of matter, that spirit mm -hmm. either doesn't exist or is some kind of off gas from matter. You know, we're we're so used to looking at things through this scientific materialistic uh, lens. Yes. That things that things like synchronicity seems sort of strange, yes. and I think that one thing we're we're finding in our current era, and I think we're at the beginning of it, is that synchronicity to me is more the rule than the exception, and and that's sort of yes. what I think is so exciting about this this field. I mean, you yourself use the term synchronous energy. What, yeah. what is synchronous energy? Synchronous energy is uh, what I would describe as a combination of two things. I think from my observations and my researches into synchronicity, which are in the book, that there is a current, as it were, an energy in the universe that is propelling us in a certain direction. And we can, um, we can use that energy, we can flow with it, or we can resist it because we perhaps think we have other plans in mind. And to that energy, we bring our own energy. And when the two combine, if they combine to uh, harmoniously, they lead us in extraordinary directions. Now, that long anecdote I told about getting the job, um, you know, the, the reason I told that anecdote is not to say how lucky I am, but to point out that if I had been left to my own devices, I would have said, oh, I want a job at, you know, Harvard, Yale, or whatever, right, high right. prestige sort of job. But the universe was nudging me and saying, what you want is not what's important. What you need is to be in this job. Because I have to tell you that what I have been able to learn through my time at Curry College, through ongoing synchronicities, has been a far, far more lasting worth to me than if I had got a high prestige job at, at Boston University or whatever. Right. And so synchronous energy is what happens when we realize there is something that is nudging us in a direction, when we pay attention to that, and when we say, all right, I'm going to work with this. Yes. I, yeah. I think that you, you put your finger on something that, of course, has parallels throughout history in because what what it starts sounding like to me is that there is a grander purpose and each of us with our individual likes dislikes needs it's very difficult for an individual decision to align with a greater purpose yes. and it's sort of like to, when I when I uh, looked at your term synchronous energy I'm, I'm thinking you know get in tune with the greater purpose yes. and and you have to I think go down that route in order to start finding meaning in synchronicity this is Philip Mirton this is conversations beyond science and religion we're speaking with dr. Alan Hunter the author of the book The Path of Synchronicity and a bunch of others, but we're, but we're trying to find not only what synchronicity is, but how to learn from it and get into the flow. 
And I would, and I'd like to now move to the flow concept because it's very, it seems like it's, it's related to the synchronous energy. And you, you are, you emphasize the importance of flow. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you mean by flow in terms of yes. synchronicity? Yes, flow has been used by many people in many different ways. Right. The way I use it uh, here is specifically in terms of accepting that there is a synchronicity, looking out for it, noticing it, and then choosing to act in accordance with it. And when one does that, one gets into a flow where more synchronicities happen, more doors which seem closed pop open, more opportunities come one's way, and one still has to use one's brain, one still has to say, okay, which of these opportunities are the ones that I most need to follow that feel most authentic to me? And when we're in that place of being fully authentic to ourselves, that flow comes almost as second nature. So we won't, we won't be seduced, as it were, by somebody coming along saying, you know, I can... I can get you a job for lots of money, all you have to do is this. And we say to ourselves, well, it's not really true of who I am, but the money is good. Yeah. That's how we turn away from the genuine flow. And I have to say, you know, people do that all the time. My students, God bless them, they often come to me and say, you know, my, my, my father wants me to take over the business, or my parents want me to be a, a lawyer or a teacher, or, but what I really want to do is and then fill in the blanks. Right. And my, my, my response to them always is, well, guess what? It is your life. And if it really feels that you are drawn in this direction for reasons that have to do with feeling thoroughly yourself, thoroughly authentic, then you have to go in that direction. Yeah, and yes, yes. I, I think that that, I mean, what is so appealing about this, and I agree with you, you know, the flow being in the flow is a common term, a common phrase. I mean, I think it's it sounds like the way from 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 Taoism, uh, you know, mm -hmm. being you know finding the way of the universe. But the the flow concept, I think, brings it more front and center and makes it more concrete, because mm -hmm. all of us, I think, appreciate what it means to be in the the flow and i would almost call it a tidal wave sometimes so, <laughs> sometimes that flow is so strong there is nothing stopping it i mean in your book you you talk about uh if you don't get the lesson once the universe keeps trying to reteach it to you and and that's sort of the way i would put the tidal wave i mean some sometimes with our I would use the term puny little brains. We, we, you know, we take these selfish standpoints or, or cultural driven peer, peer uh, pressured decisions. You know, your example about how maybe parents want their, uh, a, a child to be an accountant or something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because it's got a good starting salary and, and you start doing that and you realize that wasn't meant to be and you, and you, you know, flunk out of the class and you start doing what you really want to do but to me it is sometimes it is so powerful that it cannot be ignored and yes. and that that is that is a a um a lesson i think a lot of us wind up learning your point about when you look back over time how do we get here it it's crazy to think that you know the path that we're on so what do you tell people or who want to get into the flow how does one get into the flow yes well um i spell this out in the book actually it's a very good question um and that is there are three points the first is you actually have to accept that there may be a thing called synchronicity going on that's the first thing uh, the second thing you have to do is notice, and this is maybe the most important, notice what works for you and what doesn't work for you. What are your actual talents rather than the ones that you think you ought to have? And then, when you're noticing the way opportunities come to you, then you have to act. And that may be 
uh, it may require great boldness. And if you don't act, as you said, the universe has a way of sending us the same lessons yeah. over and over until finally we get such a powerful lesson, maybe a traumatic lesson, that says you have to rethink the way you do things. And it yeah. may be something devastating, a, 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 an emotional collapse, um, a, 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 an accident of some sort <clears throat> where somebody is so stressed that they because of the life they've chosen rather than the life they are meant to lead, that they have a terrible automobile accident. I've come across several of those. And at that point, <clears throat> the universe is asking us, think about it again in a new way. You see, the trouble is, we live in this wonderful, wonderful society with lots of possibilities, and people keep telling us what we ought to do and who we ought to be. And that's, it's kindly meant, it's often lovingly meant. And yet, and yet, it can be exactly the wrong thing. It steers us away from who and what we feel we authentically are. And that's part of the problem. So we have to listen very, very carefully. Um, one of my favorite examples is John Steinbeck, uh, who's, as a writer of fiction, he believed that synchronicity happens, that strange all writers of fiction believe that there is a, a pattern to the universe and he uh, he wrote uh, four huge historical novels because he'd done his market research and market research said you know what the public wants is historical novels and he couldn't sell any of them and then he went out and got drunk after the end of his fourth one and came back home and found that his dog had in fact chewed up all his manuscripts <laughs> uh, i did not know uh, that that's a good uh, that's a good story that's good yeah well, he'd, he'd forgotten to let the dog out and, the dog <laughs> and it chewed up all his manuscripts yeah. and then when he saw that he said the heck with this the heck with trying to please what i think the public wants he said, I'm just going to write about what's right on my doorstep. And what was right on his doorstep were the poor people that became the characters in The Grapes of Wrath, that became the characters in uh, Tortilla Flats, um, and all of those great, great stories that he wrote that brought him to the place he needed to be as a communicator, talking about the human heart. And that's why he got the Nobel Prize, not because he sold a gazillion copies of you know, pulpy romance, historical whatevers. Right. He got it because he had the courage, even when he was with, without money, when there was no future in it, he said, the heck with this. This is the way it has to be if I'm going to be authentic to who I am. And so synchronicity nudged him in the most unlikely way objectively, everyone said, you're nuts, don't do that. Yes. And it turned out to be the correct, the only way for his talents. Synchronicity, I think, I think, I can't prove this, but it may be the universe asking us to use our talents for the good of other human beings. If so, we have a, a double reason to listen, not just to be authentic to ourselves, but to see what we can give back now, I've spent a lot of time looking at literature over my life, and I've looked at literature from its earliest days until this century. Uh, if in my book, Stories We Need to Know, I look at three and a half thousand years worth of literature, and all of those great stories, all of those great stories have to do with the main characters being invited on a journey and following their intuition about what was right. Even when everyone else says, don't do that, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. They were true to themselves, and the synchronicities happened. Well, this is, this, is, this is one thing that I want to emphasize here, that, that where I think synchronicity is so powerful, and that is there's a lot of people, many of whom have been on this show, who will say to find your inner purpose, to... Um, think deeply, to, um, to listen to the heart, to meditate, to look inside, to find your authentic self, and to find your true purpose. And all of, all of that is true. But what is so powerful about synchronicity is that, is that we, we see signs of our destiny in the physical world, in reality. 
It's as if the world is talking to us and is helping us along. You don't have to, I mean, I think it's great to close your eyes, meditate, and figure out what you really want to do, and that is, it, it, I do it, it, everyone does it, but to see a sign in the physical world saying, go this way, like you're being hired at Curry College. And, and I remember one of my first jobs where I was, a, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade, and one of my first uh, jobs where I went to a hearing, and I would think I was a first or second year lawyer, and I spoke, and someone saw me, and that turned into like a fantastic job, just one thing, and I just went with it. Because I, I really didn't have any decision-making at that point. But some things happen, and they lead you along. And this, is, this to me, is, is what is so powerful, as I said, about, about synchronicity. Now, a lot of us have heard about, of course, the Law of Attraction and the, and the best-selling book, The Secret, how how does synchronicity and this and the and the synchronous energy concepts how do those relate to the law of attraction? Oh, what a wonderful question! This is something I'm working on right now, actually, mm. because uh, I'm writing a book with some very interesting people on how to manifest. Um, and uh, the the interesting thing about the secret and the law of attraction is that it's it's badly misunderstood by a lot of people. Broadly speaking, many people look at the secret and say, oh, all I have to do is imagine that I have a fast car and a big salary, yeah. and yeah. it will come to me. Uh, and actually, it's not as simple as that, because when we get into the place of following synchronicity, it's not about me, it's not about what I can get, it's not about making me wealthy, it's more about what is it that I need in order to be the most effective version, again, the most authentic version of who I am. And the more authentic we are, the more we get the opportunities. So, for example, if, I, if, I am, uh, if I'm saying to myself, oh, I want money, I want money, uh, I want to be very wealthy, the law of attraction, which is a law, it will work. But what it will hear is not give me money, what it will hear is, here is a person who spends a lot of time saying, I want money. So we'll give that person more of what he's already asking for. So we'll make him, we'll put him into a position where he's constantly wanting money. Wow. Oh, so we attract what we are, not what we want. And that's the whole purpose, uh, really, of, of a large section of my book, because um, it's not about ego. It's not about what I can get. It's more about what I can give with the resources that come my way. The resources arrive. What am I going to do with them? What am I going to do with this great opportunity that's come my way? Am I going to sit there and say, oh, that's nice. You know, what a clever chap I am. Or am I going to say, perhaps more humbly, oh, this is an opportunity to do substantial good to others in my immediate or not so immediate neighborhood. And that's very different from what many people misunderstand when they read about the law of attraction. Yeah, I, yeah that's, a, that's a really good point, Alan. And I think that there is a lot of misconceptions. So many people, I think, think, well, if I want to win the lottery, all I have to do is, is uh, exude lottery-winning thoughts and and lo and behold i'm going to get the winning ticket and you know you you say you say in your book something along the lines of the world does not respond to our words so much as our emotions how we say what we say and i think that that's a very important point here that it's really as as the Hindus say in the in the Upanishads, in one of my favorite quotes, uh, "You are what your deep driving desire is." Perfect. And Perfect. and it's and you and we don't we don't really recognize very well sometimes what our deep driving desire is. But that 
is what's driving things. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Hunter about synchronicity, and we're trying to find parallels between the famous law of attraction and synchronicity. So this this new work that you're that you're doing, I guess, with others, what how does the law of attraction change in in your sort of reinterpretation of it? What Yes. Well, the first thing one has to do, of course, is be aware of that inner language that one uses for oneself, which you just described so beautifully. And in order to ask for things, we have to be absolutely pure with our integrity as to what it is we're asking for and why. So I'll give you an example. Um, in England, before I, I came to the States, I worked with disturbed adolescents for a while. Fascinating, hard work. And there was one lad there who kept getting arrested uh, for theft. And I said to him, you know, because I knew a little bit about his disturbance and his background, I, I kept asking him, you know, why did you steal that? It was obvious you were going to get caught. And he would always say, oh, because I wanted it. I wanted it. But me as a practitioner, and in fact any practitioner who was observing this, would be able to say, no. No, he did it in order to get caught because some part of his deep psyche wanted to be caught and punished to, in order to get some sort of recognition. Now, that's a simple example of the way we sometimes get confused. We think we want something, but our deep psychic need, uh, as you say from the, the Upanishads, that driving passion may be very different. This lad wanted to get caught, but he thought he wanted the thing he was stealing. Yeah. We're yeah. all like this lad. We may think, oh, I want to do good in the world. But we may also have quite a large portion of ourselves that says, and when I do good in the world, all my neighbors will take me seriously, and my kid brother who doesn't like me will take me seriously. And suddenly the motivation has shifted. What we have to do, I think, as we follow the nudges that synchronicity gives us, is to be absolutely pure in that sense of this is what needs to be done, not because of me, but because of what needs to be done. Now, if that sounds a little bit out there, think of some of the important figures um, of the past, recent past. I mean, uh, Mohandas Gandhi, he was absolutely sure that he had what he needed to do and that he was prepared to die for it. So it wasn't about his ego. Um, we may say, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he was absolutely sure what he needed to do, what he was sent to do, and his work in terms of peace and equal rights continues, but he knew, he knew he would be shot or killed somehow for it, because that's what happened to blacks in America at that time. And if we look at perhaps more recent people, um, you know, uh, anthropologist Jane Goodall, a wonderful, wonderful scientist and observer of primates and and yet she is absolutely clear that synchronicity happens and you have to negotiate it a scientist who believes in that synchronicity and i could add more and more examples it's not about what you get it's about what you can give yeah and i i want to emphasize something here that first of all we are accustomed as i said a little bit ago to think that you know synchronistical events are some kind of rare coincidences that science someday will figure out we could take that viewpoint or adopt it but but consider that what science will figure out is that Carl Jung was correct as were the Hindus and many others that there is a collective unconscious that there is a oneness, a unity, and probably more people believe that than don't believe it. It remains perhaps a mystical concept, but if that is true, and of course I happen to think it is true, then then we are not really individual people. We are not really separate robots. We are really part of a whole, and so that gives meaning to thinking for the common good. 
which I think is extremely important, Alan, because it, 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 says, it says that we're not really separate. We're playing separate roles, but we're really part of a unity. Therefore, it's never going to be a long-term benefit to only think about yourself because that's a false impression. And, and so this, to me, is a, a really, synchronicity to me is a real a big data point showing that, there, that Carl Jung was correct, that yeah. there is a collective unconscious. So I'm just wondering, what, what do you think of all that? Do you, and I, I know in your book you're, you're a little hesitant to go to the bigger questions um, which is, you know, what's behind it all. But what do you think is behind it all? Or is that a topic you just don't get into? Oh, I, I think there is something behind it all. I think uh, uh, there is a force that rules the universe, whether it is a, a what, what kind of force it is, is probably not worth asking too much about because it could be something way beyond our ability to comprehend because we're just human beings. But I'm very glad you mentioned Hindu belief. Hindu belief, one of the oldest and certainly one of the uh, largest religions that still exists, so 7,000 years or so of Hindu belief, they have absolutely no doubt at all that there is a, a power that drives the universe forward, and they have no doubt at all that there is there is karma, which is a version of what you do comes back to you, and therefore there is a shape, a, a shaping influence to the universe. And there's also a synchronous aspect to the universe that we are called to be, in Hindu terms, most authentically whoever we are, whether that, that's a, a saint or a criminal in Hindu belief. Uh, that is a powerful religion that has existed alongside wonderful science as well. There are world-renowned Nobel Prize-winning Hindu scientists. Yeah. They believe in, in Hinduism and they believe in science. So what I would say is that synchronicity is part of a law of the universe that scientific materialism in the West is very skeptical about because we can't measure it. Or if we can measure it, we, we tend to say, oh, it's only anecdotal or this, this, this has no statistical validity. Right. I would like to suggest that, that there may be many, many laws that we are only just beginning to understand, and there's, there's no reason why something isn't true just because we can't pin it down in precise terms. A hundred years ago, if I had uh, said to somebody, oh, I was just talking to Philip uh, over the airwaves, uh, and he's, in, uh, you know, he's a thousand miles away, uh, they have said, you're nuts, you're crazy. Uh, 500 years ago, if, um, if I'd been taking, uh, I don't know, some sort of remedy or other that had been supplied to me by my local, my local wise person in the village, they'd have said, oh, you know, he's a person who goes to witch doctors. And yet, and yet, much of that information has been shown to be absolutely valid and useful and true. Just because we don't have a way to sum it up neatly today doesn't mean that it isn't true. So I have a little bit of a, a always have a little bit of a, a battle here with the scientific materialists in my world. I'm a college professor. I've got lots of them. Yeah. And uh, those people are going to say, well, you can't prove that. You know, that's just hogwash. To which, of course, there isn't much answer because, because it's asking the wrong questions. Well, yeah, there's a certain point in time, I think, where the coincidences pile up and are so stunning that most people would think something is up. And I don't care how hardcore of a materialist you are. And sometimes it's, you know, this is how people sort of get converted into thinking more holistically where where things happen happen to themselves. I mean, I I have a parallel in my own book. I think that there is a parallel between synchronicity and the fine tuning of the universe. I mean, I I don't think what is what is strange. I mean, if you if you carry this thinking to its logical conclusion, to me, 
uh, synchronicity shows that we're part of a big story. That's that's what I think is. I mean, your your emphasis on literature, I think to me is is very compelling because you, you know you point out in your book and as you've just discussed, you know, literature stories are all about synchronicity, and there is a parallel between literature, which are you know, fiction, and the real world. It's just that we happen to live in one heck of a complicated story. I mean, this nobody nobody could possibly figure this thing out. And and but it is a it is a it's a story nonetheless, which leads me to what I think is one of the most difficult problems with this is is this whole question about controlling fate, and and we know. What what is so hard, Alan, to me, is reconciling your personal wants and and desires with what the universe wants to give you. And so many times you look back and you say, "Oh, well, that was the right thing. It was good that I didn't marry so and so, or it's good that I went to college here instead of there, and it's good that you got a job at Curry College instead of." you know, Boston University or whatever. But at the time, you know, the heart or the mind might have been going in a different direction. Yes. And 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 that's to me is the hardest thing to grapple with. What 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 do you do about that? I mean what do what do you say about this concept, you know, this this yes. concept of fate? Fate is a big one because of course fate is is much larger than we can we can ever appreciate. Um, and we've only to think of those writers and thinkers whose lives ended in poverty and misery, but whose works have been so uplifting to so many people after they're dead. And to the person concerned, it must seem as though fate was very cruel. But we don't know the effects of our actions. We can't know the effects of our actions. I can't know when I'm teaching a class. I can't know what impact... I'm having, if any, on those students. And it may be that it's not until maybe 10, 15 years later, as has happened to me, that those students come back and say, you know, at the time I didn't get that class, but now I see it's the most significant thing that I experienced at college. And I think, right. oh, that's nice. Right. But what's more important is not whether I'm getting you know, my ego stroked. What's important is that they've suddenly realized that there are effects that go way beyond where we are. Now, um, one of the things you could say is, you know, what's the most famous bit of English literature that everybody's heard of? You know, the one that everyone talks about is, of course, Hamlet. Right, right. Hamlet is about exactly what we're talking about. Hamlet feels he has to do something, which is to embark on a course of revenge that means killing his uncle. And he spends the whole play, um, you know, agonizing about this. And eventually he, he does kill his uncle, etc. But if we stand back from that play and say, look at this as an artifact of the neuroses of society. And look at it as here is a person who feels he has to shape his life a certain way according to what he's been told. Now, Imagine how different it would be if Hamlet had just said, no, I'm going to step well back, I'm going to keep calm, and I'm going to see how everything unfolds. Because actually, when, when he does kill Claudius, it is because all of Claudius's crimes have come to light as a result of unfolding events over which Hamlet has no control. So that's a literary reference there. But we might say that the problem with us is we think we have to be in charge of our fates as opposed to saying, oh, look what is being sent my way. How am I going to react here? Am I going to panic and start doing things? Or am I going to be with it and see what arises from the conversation with myself and the problem? And that's a very, very different way forward. Yeah, I think, actually, yeah. Yeah, I think, that's, I think, that's, I think that's really good. Uh, this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Hunter, the author of 
the path of synchronicity and we're trying to find meaning in this in this concept of synchronicity and figure out how we can learn from it and get into the flow one of the things that again that I noted in your book that I that is along this line that I thought was was really uh, a direct way to put it you say that you know there's there's two there's two big lessons one of them is that you have to breathe air by gulping at first but then you say the other lesson is learn to cooperate with the world work with it or you'll soon die yes and that that is really you know putting it in in concrete hard and fast real terms and what what did you what do you mean by that well the the example I choose is of our first experience as babies. We come into the world where you know, we've been in the womb and everything basically has been done for us. And the first lesson is, as I said, we have to gulp air, we have to breathe it. So we have to cooperate with this wonderful stuff, this air, but we have, we have to do our part. And similarly, when we're first fed as babies, until that point, we've been sitting in, in the womb and the umbilical cord has supplied everything. And now we, we, we have a nipple, uh, either a bottle or a breast, and we have to suck at it. We have to put in the effort to get the good stuff. So it's not many people feel, especially in terms of, of the secret that we mentioned earlier, that we are kind of have to sit back and be calm and meditate and imagine. I'm saying the basic lessons of the universe are right there when we're born, and that is there is infinite good and there's everything we need and everything we can want out there, but we have to take action and use it. And I want to emphasize as well here there's a difference between what we want and what we need. You know, the baby would love to go back to the womb where everything is done. Right. But that's that. It may want that, but that's not what it needs in order to grow. It's like that old Rolling Stones uh, song that I sometimes hum to myself. You can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometime you just might find you get what you need. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, when you think about it, as you were saying that, that really, you know, needs needs are more of a authentic desire than a want. Because a want, a want is more personal, more selfish, and and it is a, it, from my own experience, it's a very healthy way to carry on. It's mm. is focusing on needs as opposed to wants. The 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 one thing that I I think is is very important here as well from my perspective is that this flow, this storyline to the universe which uh, is, is what we're trying to get in touch with, we don't know how powerful it really is. I think that we are sort of, we're just understanding it right now, and I, or, 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 or we're trying to understand it. And it's sort of like we are, we are still, to me, a very young society, a very young civilization. Because we don't truly understand all this, all this stuff about the world, the un, the collective unconscious. Uh, we could talk about the findings of science, how much they really don't understand, and I talk about that on other shows. But they clearly don't have it figured out. And what what you're doing, and I I really agree with it, is that you know we don't understand all this. We don't know where the, this flow will take us. But if, but as you point out, if you pay attention to what arrives, and act with courage, and then work hard w- with whatever the situation arrives, and that's out of your book. I love the act with courage, yes. because it's not just sitting down, as as we said earlier, on the couch, and either praying for that lottery ticket, or or trying to get the law of attraction to you know deliver it to you as you're sitting on the couch. It, it's you have to act and the courage part of it I think is is extremely important because we don't really know if it's going to work <laughs> right you don't we really know to, if it's going to work that it will work and perhaps even more than that I mean along with courage I think comes love right 
And I think the, the force that created everything probably is a loving force. It seems almost incontrovertible to me. And so we have to align with that loving force and be loving back. Yeah, yeah, and that and that goes to the you know the greater good and thinking about um, somebody other than yourself Precisely. when 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 you are acting acting in the world. So, with regard to your you know acceptance in at Curry College, you you mentioned earlier that the the um, Orthodox Science folks sort of look askance uh, at some of this. Do you see anything changing in that regard, or do you think that that there's always going to be the separate worlds, those those like us that think there's truth and synchronicity and the scientists off doing their thing with their with their particles and and uh, materialistic <laughs> theories. I mean I mean do you see do you see anything ever happening where there's going to be one one world? one world view? I, I do. I'm an optimist. I see that we're moving ever closer to this sense of one world. <laughs> because even the most dyed-in-the-world physicist has to admit that there is a power that has created our universe, and they all admit that there are more dimensions than just ours. We just don't know very much about those other dimensions <laughs> or what they look like. So they, they also believe that there is a that is moving through everything. And I think since they believe that, and we, I'm uh, putting us both together here, we believe that too. And so many other people who see synchronicity and know it to be true, they, you know, they believe this as well. I see that in the end, we're not that far apart. It's just that there is fear in some of the hard scientists who, wants, who want their data, who want their graphs, who want their statistics. And that's the way they've been trained. They've been trained for a lifetime to want that. It's not going to be easy to get those people to step forward in new ways. Uh, but I think the, the world generally is much more interested not in the hard sciences, but, the way, but in the way the hard sciences feed into uh, our psyches, how we are in the world rather than what can be proved in, in specific terms. So I see the two sides actually is coming together very gradually, uh, inevitably, and that's of course one of the reasons I, I wrote the book and risked uh, uh, alienated large quantities of my colleagues. Yeah, well, well the more I, I read and study in this area, the more I'm of the mind that they're really it's really a, a cultural or a peer pressure driven problem where the orthodox folks, the mainstream uh, scientists, don't want to be ridiculed or criticized for adopting these far-out, strange ideas. On the other hand, when you look at some of the strange theories that they pursue, and you and you know, there is the multidimensional string theory, there's the multiverse, there's dark matter, there's the inflationary Big Bang, all these things that you talk about on the show, but, but there isn't the the beauty of synchronicity compared to those is that we have real evidence that <laughs> yes. that that there is synchronicity and no one's ever seen the thirteenth dimension uh, <laughs> or a, or the fifth dimension uh, for that matter I mean no one's ever seen and the multiverse of course uh, most I think most or a good proportion of scientists don't think that that is science either because by definition you can't prove it so. So this is what is exciting about this about this era that we're in, Alan. I think that we we are seeing some of the walls being broken down between, um, I guess maybe the new spiritual movement or this holistic movement, uh, and 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 modern science. And I think that you know synchronicity is such a great topic because it's real. We don't have to get real fancy with laboratory <laughs> experiments and card guessing and 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 the and the computers and everything because they happen and you sit back and you say, "Wow, that is that is really a coincidence." Now, the one thing that you also do in your book that I want to touch upon briefly is that you make a connection to, to this concept of channeling. Yeah. 
Yes. And, you know, channeling, and we've had a couple channels uh, mm-hmm. on this show, which, which, and I do it because uh, most, uh, at least the Western religions, mm-hmm. they're based upon channeling. I mean, the, the Koran, to me, is maybe the cleanest example where mm-hmm. essentially Muhammad was channeled the Koran through... Yes through God. I mean, it, it came through him. You know, he, he had that message, recite. And he and this peasant starts reciting this beautiful, long, poetic book called the Koran. So what, what connection do you make be, uh, with channeling and synchronicity? Uh, I'm very pleased you mentioned uh, Muhammad there, because, of course, you could say the same thing about St. Paul. Right. He basically believed that he was channeling uh, the only true version of what became the Christian religion uh, at a time when there were many, many different versions of that coming from many different people. So, yeah, there are people who who channel. Uh, Some of them, I think, are very convincing. Some of them are less convincing. And what I would perhaps say is that when somebody is channeling, and this goes back to an earlier part of the conversation, which um, uh, I think is, is very important, that when people are in that space, they are connecting to what Jung would have called a collective unconscious. That there is something coming through them from elsewhere. And that much of what can come through to us from the collective unconscious, whether it's through channeling or possibly through dreams or other, other ways, through intuitions, much of that is deep wisdom. And some of that deep wisdom is is very much in tune with what we might call synchronicity. And yet we also know there are several folks out there who claim to channel who are just, well, perhaps uh, making it all up, but perhaps uh, not in, in the best interests of anything but their own fame and fortune. So we have to be careful here, as with synchronicity. We have to choose what we believe and what feels authentic. Yeah, yep. yeah, and I think it's I think it's important, and it's it's so difficult uh, to not stereotype folks like Chandler's or yeah. mediums, and it's mm-hmm. it's almost in fr- and, and frankly, I think a lot of people have a hard time not not taking a stereo stereotypical approach, and, but that that stereotypical approach or prejudice is also applied to people like Dean Radin. Who you know, one of the leading um, parapsychology researchers in yeah. the in the world. There's some. There's a lot of people that simply do not want to see the results, do not yeah. want to read the books because they know it's not true. And I and I think that you know these lessons we learn when we're young about not prejudging people, and of yeah. course you cannot prejudge the evidence. You know, we need to learn that lesson <laughs> across <laughs> across the spectrum of, of professionals and, and teachers. You know, you have to treat all of this one by one and look at the evidence. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that is a, um, you know, a very, very a, a important sort of observation because to me at the end of the day, what it says is that if you assume as given a collective unconscious or a one mind, or a unified spirit, whatever we're calling a force, the source, whatever, we start making sense of these things. We start seeing a purpose behind uh, life and these and these coincidences, and we start understanding channelers and this and religions and all these things. The doors start opening. Uh, I, Alan, I'd like to thank you for your time. We've we've quickly come to the end. Uh, we, we've, of course, just, just touched the surface, but I think that we have uh, done, a, done a good job of, of understanding uh, synchronicity, how we, can, how we can get into the flow. And why don't you just tell folks, the listeners, your website and, and what you're up to now for those who want to follow up a little bit. Oh, thank you, Philip. This has been a lovely conversation. And as you say, there is more to, uh, to look at. So my website is www.allanhunter, that's A-L-L-A-N, hunter, all one word, dot net. Uh, don't go to dot com, that's somebody totally different. <laughs> there you'll find uh, synopses 
uh, and links for all my books, which are available on Amazon. And they're also available from the publishers, uh, particularly findhornpress.com. So those are good ways to, uh, to track down my work and get to read the first chapters, decide whether you like what you, you read. And uh, you can also contact me directly through that um, website. Yeah. So that would be the best way. That's, that's great. And I like to close by just emphasizing again that things like synchronicity, I, I think, show that we are part of a larger story. Uh, we, we, we cannot forget that the Earth itself is in sync with this thing called the sun, that yes. it is at the right distance to allow life to prosper on, on this planet. The, the stars are in motion. We are, there's all this fine tuning that allows the world to exist. We are, I think, part of a grand story that it does help to get into the flow and go with it because it really does uh, pay dividends in a real sense when we play the role that the universe is giving us. Now, I want to also uh, tell folks next week I'm happy to have on the show uh, Mario uh, Lavio, who we're going to be talking about, is God a mathematician? So we're going to be switching gears a little bit, but we're going to be talking about why it seems that mathematics rules the universe. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Alan, thank you very much for your time, and oh, we'll see. You, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.